This is WCPO FM 1051 on your FM dial, Cincinnati, Ohio. WKRC, Cincinnati. This is the nation station. Hi again, everyone, and welcome to the Cincy Shirts Podcast. It's episode 113. Today on our show, Chip Chinnery. I was able to see a, a, a another comic do some of my material, which is always a treat because he stole it. Now, I won't mention any names right now, but, you know, the stand-up com- comedy community is very tight. And I was in L.A. All of a sudden, my phone started ringing from the East Coast. You know, it's like 8.30, 9 o'clock my time in L.A. Dude, this guy just did your joke. He did your Lincoln Memorial joke. Chip Chinnery is a stand-up comedian and actor. You may know him more from the latter, but he started telling jokes on stage back in the 80s at the age of 16 at a bar in Clifton. He started touring a few years after graduating from Miami University up there in Oxford, and he wound up in Hollywood in the early 90s and has since been in tons of commercials, TV shows, and movies. Uh, if you just Google him, uh, you will recognize him immediately. And in addition to comedy and acting, he's adept at managing his money and shares his tips via a blog that's separate from his website, and that's called Chip's Money Tips. Just Google that. You'll be glad you did. And speaking of money, if you've been liking the podcast, you can help support it by PayPal or Venmo, of course. Simply use podcast at cincyshirts.com and chip in whatever you feel is fair. Also, be sure to listen for the special promo code, speaking of saving money, for 20% off near the end of the episode. Now let's talk to Chip Chinnery. Cincinnati, Ohio. Cincinnati, Ohio. I come from Cincinnati. She came down Cincinnati. Just maybe think of me once in a while. Cincyshirts.com in Cincinnati. Hey, Chip. How's it going? Good, buddy. How are you? I'm, I'm all right. I don't have a video stream, but hopefully my voice will be so colorful, like Vin Scully, like listening to Vin <laughs> call a game. The Purple Mountain's Majesty over in Dodger yeah, Stadium. That's, that's not too bad. Yeah. <laughs> Vin has a sickness, I think, that worked out well for him. The guy can just talk nonstop. It's amazing. You we didn't want to be in a booth with him, I don't think. Anyway. Yep. All right. So, uh, yeah, so this is our first uh, Skype podcast. Welcome to the, the new age here. It's exciting. Love it. So is L.A. Uh, keeping it real? Oh, it's locked down. Yeah, it's been locked down for, what, a week or two, something like that. And so it's not that much different than, than my regular life, but uh, <laughs> except you don't go to restaurants. But uh, pretty much it's like, oh, I'm solitary, working on my own thing. Yep, that's about right. Do you normally work from home? I do. Oh, okay. So, other than acting auditions, which are completely dried up. I don't I mean, leave the house that much. <laughs> yeah. That's what I was wondering. What's TV going to be like in six months when uh, they yeah. run out of, uh, you know, all the stuff in the in the can? Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, they've already been doing uh, auditions from home. So I think they can still cast from home. But then as far as shooting things, eh, it's going to, we'll, we'll find out. We've learned a lot in two weeks. So I'm thinking the next two months, we're going to find out a lot more. People will adapt and we'll figure things out. But. Just do TV For shows now. from home. There you go. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's, some are doing that, aren't they? Yeah. <laughs> so you're from Cincinnati originally, obviously, which is why we have you on, on the show. So yes. uh, as the resident Clevelander here in the uh, 
chat, I will ask you what. Oh, Jesus, here what, we go. No, I'm just gonna. What what high school did you go to? I, I know to ask that now. <laughs> I'm a Saint X guy. Yeah, it's like in Cincinnati. It's like you, when somebody says, "Where do you go to school?" They're not asking where you went to college. Nope. Nope. <laughs> so yeah, that, I went to that is only that is only really true for Cincy, right? It seems like it anyway. Uh, somebody I, told me that St. Louis is like that as well, but I don't know that for. Firsthand, we'll have to have Greg Warren on and, and and confirm that. I lived in Pittsburgh and in Cleveland, and that's exactly true. As for, at least for those three cities, is that Cleveland and Pittsburgh? It means what college you went to. Shockingly, for Pittsburgh, assuming people went to college there, ha! <laughs> just, <laughs> just, <laughs> that's for <laughs> Josh. Cleveland. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. Yep. So when you so Saint X, and then where where'd you go from there? I went to Miami. Graduated in '86 from Miami. And what was your major there? What, at what point did you know that uh, you you may not even need college for what? Yeah, you do? Uh, I got a degree in psychology with an emphasis in business, which really just means I was in the business school. And then halfway through my junior year, when I switched over to psychology, because I ran into a juggernaut, a buzzsaw called Accounting Two Hundred Two, and it, it it granted me an F, a failing grade. And at <laughs> that point, we pulled the plug on business degree. And uh, said, well, I'm going to get a psych degree. I like psychology. Yeah, so they said, well, we have a different division called a business uh, psych, which you can use your business courses as related to the psychology thing. So I have a degree in psychology with an emphasis in business, which I've never used. Although in stand-up, I say that well, stand uh, psychology and comedy are similar because they both study how people act. It's kind of true, though, right? I yeah. mean, do you do you think subconsciously that it, that sort of a background helped you find material or be able to, you know, re- relate your thoughts to make well, them like uh, applicable to like large audiences? I think it was just I, I didn't. I don't think I learned anything in my psychology classes that influenced comedy. I think what it, you have a curiosity that makes you attracted to psychology. So I think there's that connection. And that's the same curiosity that makes you want to write comedy too, I think. At least I say it. It sounds right, doesn't it? <laughs> well, when did, what, what prompted your first foray into comedy? Was it something you always wanted to do? Did you do like an open mic on a whim or? I was, uh, I started, I loved comedy. I used to sit outside my bedroom door and watch down the hall through my parents' bedroom door to see the tv which my mom always watched johnny carson's monologue pretty much every night so i'd stay up late i loved staying up late even as a young kid probably 10 years old or so so i'd stay up and watch carson's monologue from my bedroom and then uh i just loved it so i at age 13 i started writing down joke ideas and um not great stuff yeah you know like do birds come from bird seed you know (laughs) Stuff I like, like that. that. <laughs> I had, you know, so it's, you know, it's like, it's a start. So I wrote down joke ideas and then, um, my dad must've known I wanted to do it. So he, he put this ad that he saw in the newspaper for a, a club in Clifton. It was a bar that was going to start doing comedy nights and they were looking for amateur comedians and the club was called DWI, D period, W period, E Y E. And it was, uh, on the UC campus or right, you know, right near it. And, uh, so when I was 16, I went down and auditioned, and they said, yeah, great. You can come and do weekends. So we, it would be basically an amateur night with some guys who'd been there a year. It was uh, Anyway, so the, it, was a, it was basically an amateur night show with a headliner like Emo Phillips or someone like that from Chicago who would come down. 
And it was just at the beginning of stand-up. We're talking 1981, summer of 81. Wow. It was a beginning. It was before the boom in stand-up comedy clubs, but it was definitely the forefront of it. And you were 16? I was 16. They let me in. I turned, <laughs> I turned 17 that summer. Thankfully, there was a guy a year older than me who had just who had pretty much blazed the trail. So Alex Bernstein was uh, 16 or 17 when he started. Uh, a year earlier at that same club. So I was able to walk in and they kind of knew the blueprint. I'm like, okay, just don't that's, drink any alcohol. <laughs> that's amazing to me. Cause like, you know, I've been fascinated with the people who did stand up in Cincinnati before I started because a lot of them had moved away and I'd never actually gotten to meet them. I'd only heard of them. And when I started doing stand up, it was a month before my 21st birthday that I did my first open mic. <sighs> And I was considered like super young at that time for someone wanting to do an open mic. So like to think that you were even doing them at 16 is like, that blows my mind. <laughs> yeah, it was, uh, it was, it was strange. I mean, you're not that funny at 16. Let's be honest. There are not that really many <laughs> funny 16 year olds and you don't have a lot of life experience. You don't, you can't talk about your wife or your car, or your mortgage, you know, you just, your, your point of references are so you know, you're talking about bird seed. Do birds come from bird seed? <laughs> do the do the Eisenhower's was was do the Eisenhower's collect or do the Roosevelts collect dimes? It's just who would want to spend grandpa? Just stupid things like that. A lot of but puns. See, that's hilarious. That's I love stuff. puns. Yeah. Like I'm yeah. I'm very open that that like silliness and wordplay are like two of my favorite things in stand up. And I remember the first headshot of yours I ever saw was it was like you kind of the way people do those Olin Mill shots where they're resting their chin on their two hands. Yes. And, and if you looked at the headshot, you had three hands. Yes. So it was like your, it was like three different hands with your chin resting on it. And that headshot made me laugh every time that I looked at it. Oh, thank you. I loved that headshot. I was like, you know what? I, I, it came from a parody of, I had, um, at the time, there were a lot of stand-up comics who were calling themselves the the blank of comedy, and I had decided I was the cheese man of comedy, which meant nothing. I was just parodying everybody's headshot head, you know, the the dork of comedy. I think Steve Caminiti was the dork of comedy. Everybody had a handle or a hook. Jimmy Gleese was the easy boy of comedy. Anyway, so I had all these – I had four headshots that I snapped. That was one of them, and the other ones were parodying the other stand-up comedy headshots that were out there. But a lot of guys had their hand on their fist – and I just like I got to put a third one out there. <laughs> so, that was a uh, I loved it, and I brought that out. I was using that when I moved to Los Angeles, and a lot of casting people got it and loved it or hated me because they thought I was just trying to be trying to be funny. And I was like, no, no, I'm parodying something that you don't know about. But <laughs> but some people loved it, some people hated it, but I loved it. It was fun. <laughs> was stand up like? And at least when you started, was that all that you wanted to do or did you always see it as like a stepping stone to writing or acting or something else? I wanted I, – it was the first outlet for sure. It's like oh, I could do this. I could go do stand-up at this place. Um, but I also was interested in writing sitcom scripts. And so I started in the summer of 81, summer before my senior year in high school. But then a year later, a year and a half later when I was at Miami as a freshman – I wrote two Cheers scripts, and that was uh, Cheers' first year was that fall. It came on in the fall of 82, and I loved it. So I wrote two Cheers scripts. So I thought, oh, maybe I'll go be a writer. 
and this will be my next path. And then I found out that you couldn't get anything read by agents. So then I was like, ah, daggone it. Because you'd, you'd ask the writer's guild for a list of agents so you could submit your work to them so they could represent you. And um, I couldn't get anybody to handle me. And then I noticed on the list, it's, uh, it was all these people from Los Angeles and a few from New York. And then there was one guy in like Pennsylvania. And I was like, I called up the guild. I said, can I, what's it take to be an agent? And in Los Angeles, they said, oh, you got to have a surety bond. You got to have a this, that. You got to have an address and all this. But then I called the New York side of it. American writers go to America West. And they said, uh, yeah, just sign up and, you know, we'll hook you up. <laughs> and so I actually created a, a writer's guild agency. I was, a, I was a signatory writer's guild agency called under agency. Because I was underage when I wrote this. <laughs> underage to go to bars. And so I was listed in the Writers Guild of America West directory as, a, as a, an agency. And I didn't want people to send me scripts. But I got scripts for years. I think I finally closed it in like 87 or 88. Or handed it off to a buddy. But <laughs> I created it so that I could be a writer. To, manage, to represent yourself. Yeah, and it just to, to get myself submitted, and I, I just stupidly, I didn't, you know, I didn't know how it worked. I submitted through the under agency. I submitted to Cheers, and you're never supposed to submit a script for the show you want to get on because those people live it, breathe it, twenty four seven, and you just you're not. They're going to find problems that no one else would. So right, that was you should a find a show like Cheers. Yeah, and submit like, that. Yeah. yeah, it's like oh, you love the Cosby shows. Submit. Submit the cheer script to Cosby, you know, not, not cheers to cheers. So anyway, I got a call from, I want, I, I was a David Lee. I actually got him on the phone. He was a producer of cheers. He goes, I'd never heard of anybody creating an agency to get their stuff submitted. <laughs> like, well, you know, you got some hope here. You got some promise, but uh, you know, it's a nice first draft. And he said, keep trying. So I, I, that's as far as it went, but that was my, I thought, oh, I could go be a writer, but then I just never. I didn't keep doing it. Well, at some point, you you spent a little bit of time at Second City in Chicago, right? I did. I, uh, in college, I won a contest where I got to perform with the National Touring Company, which I'm sure was a delight to the cast. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good. A college kid who thinks he's funny is going to come and improvise with us. This is oh, comedian Make-A-Wish. Oh, Exactly. <laughs> Yeah, so that was I did a show there, and then I thought this is fantastic. I want to. I love sketch. I li- I liked the idea of sketch and improv. So when they, you know, I started doing stand up, and I I always liked that idea of Second City because SNL had just come on in seventy five to eighty with the original cast, and they were huge. So I was like, oh, this this could be something I want to do. I don't have to just do stand up. I could be a sketch performer, an improv guy. And I actually, uh, so I eventually took class at Second City in 93, but it had taken a long time for me to get to Chicago. And I moved there one summer, summer of 93, and worked the comedy clubs at night uh, and then took Second City class on the weekend. Well, you you had the luxury of, I say it's a luxury, but I don't know, of your dad encouraging you to try stand-up so – would did that does that mean that when you said hey I want to I want to do this for a living that you didn't get a lot of backlash for abandoning a psychology degree from <laughs> Miami? It's, it's true, um, and and my mom was even uh, more support or as supportive. They neither one was more or less supportive, but my mom 
my mom's father was my grandfather, whom I never met because um, he died before I was born. But he uh, he had he was a uh, what was he? He was a doctor. <laughs> I was going to say psychologist, which he wasn't. That would have been a lie. He was a <laughs> pediatrician, and um, so my mom came from that family where you you know the doctor living in Mount Lookout or Hyde Park, and um, so that was her background. But she was also interested in artistic endeavors. So when I I had a job that I left to do stand-up full-time. I knew I was going to quit to go do stand-up, but I was very self-conscious about it and didn't tell them my plan. I just said, I'm going to quit this job and I'm going to go do something. And they said, what are you going to do? And I said, I don't know. And my mom said, oh, that's that's exciting, which took me aback. (laughs) It's like, here's my mom who's, you know, raised in a very much more strict uh, certain lifestyle. And then here I am going, I don't know what I'm going to do. As age twenty four, so but they were both very supportive. They thought it was cool. My dad's a funny guy, and uh, so it was fun. Yeah, that's uh, that's very interesting to me because like I had just the opposite where yeah, my dad was a funny guy, but he had a, a day job as you know he worked at Kenner Toys and he, and he I think that was a big part of why he was funny because he was just always acting like a big kid and right. around their guys that did the same. But my mom worked at Procter and Gamble and that's where I was working when I did my first open mic. So to her, the thought of me leaving that job for even another company seemed crazy, right. let alone to do comedy. <laughs> what did, uh, I didn't know you worked at Procter and Gamble. What did you do there? Well, worked is a strong word, but I was employed <laughs> there. I uh, I was an IT guy. I, uh-huh. Systems analyst was my title, but you know, the three and a half years I was there, I was doing stand up at night, yeah. uh, open mics. So, I think everybody kind of knew just based on how often I was trying to get on stage and talking about it at work during the day that I probably wasn't long for the corporate <laughs> world at that point. Yeah, we got a short timer over here. Yeah. Sneed. <laughs> got another one. So what prompted the move to L.A.? Just felt uh, like that's your next logical step? Yeah, I had uh, – I I started in 1981. I started doing stand-up. Did those open mics that summer before my senior year in college or senior year in high school. And then I did occasionally throughout college, from high school through college. I did a few shows a year. And then I got out of college – Got a job at Channel 9 in Cincinnati as a cameraman and uh, was there at the end of uh, Al Shadokati's days for anybody oh, who's yeah. older yeah. than Dirt who's listening. Uh, but you may know, you know Al Shadokati. Of course. Uh, so he was there and uh, I was running camera during the Donald Harvey uh, case that Pat Menarsen broke where he was the, the serial killer at the Drake Hospital in the late 80s. Anyway, I, why, why digress into that area? But I was a cameraman, and then I started doing open <laughs> mics. And I was like, I, I want to do this for a living. And it, by then, the club scene had really risen. And there are clubs all over the country, and people were making a living doing it. But it got to the point where that's a big step, I found, for me anyway, is when you want something so bad that you've wanted since you were a child. And then what happens if you take that step and you fail? So I think there's a lot of fear for me. It's like taking that final step from open mics. I've been messing around with this thing since 1981, and it's 1988, seven years of doing – I counted them up. I have 100 shows I did before I went pro. Ugh. But then um, I finally uh, 
went on the road full time in October of 88 and did pretty much 50 weeks a year for five years. And what prompted my move to L.A. was I was tired of it, the road. Yeah. And I just, you know, I, I remember when I started, I was like, oh, this is great. I'm in a different town every week and I eat out every <laughs> right. meal. And right. then after a few weeks, you're going, oh, I'm in a different town every week and I eat out every meal. Ugh. I sit in the so, hotel room until showtime and after the show, everyone leaves. And- oh, yeah. I have a picture of one of my first road gigs in the summer of 88 when I was up in Connecticut. And I took a picture of the hotel and I wasn't taking it ironically. I was like, look at this hotel. There's a pool. There's my car parked out front. Here's my room. I took a picture of it. And it was a seedy hotel looking back at it. It was like the El Rancho. I mean, it yeah. was like, <laughs> this is not good. But I was so excited to not be at my job. And and so when I hit the road, it was fun. And then I, after about five years, about four years, I made a couple trips to L.A. And I said, well, I got to go. I got to – this is where I got to go because I'm not going to be – I'm not going to be a comedy club headliner who crushes to the point where people want to pay a ton of money to see me. I, I just didn't see it coming. I didn't think it would happen for me. So I was like, well, I'm going to get at into that TV. point. Were you featuring or headlining? Uh, I was solidly featuring and started to headline. I was headlining the Mueller gigs in the Midwest that were two man <laughs> shows or, yeah. you know, some of John Yoder stuff in Michigan and, you know, oh, some of these triple headliner shows and like Tom Sobel might book. So I was, I, I was dipping my toe into the headliner world. I was never this crushing headliner in my opinion that you could count on every show to crush like some guys do. So it was always a little stressful when you headline and for now, me. Now, can, who were some of your contemporaries like either here in Cincinnati or guys that you came up with that, you know, on the road that, people might recognize uh when i started in cincinnati drew hastings was starting pretty much the same time i was john Regi, who went on to be john a- Regi. oh yeah do you know Regi? i i know him through email and facebook i'm i'm a huge fan of his work because i've i've seen some of his stand-up but the shows that he's worked on mm-hmm. are so iconic especially uh 30 Rock is oh, yeah. like just one of my all-time favorite sitcoms. It's great. And he uh, I just so happy we kind of reconnected. Uh, anyway, yeah, and the, I talked to him yesterday and uh, he's you know he won a Peabody for 30 Rock. I was like, you have yeah. a Peabody award. That's amazing. Wow. And uh so and yeah, I John, think it's important for people to hear like local comics. I didn't mean to cut you off, but like no. you know, I'm 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 a student of the history of stand up in this city because I have such a passion for the amazing things that a lot of people did when they live here that some of these these newer comics may not know because they haven't seen them walking around the club or they may not have a Netflix special, but they've gone on to do amazing things and their roots are here in town. And I think that's important for people to hear. Oh, yeah. It's, uh, every town can have some. You, uh, yeah. Regi to me is so funny and watching him work early on you just you realize oh okay so that's kind of what i want to do i want to do stuff that i think is really funny i learned early on not to do things that i to don't try to figure out what the audience wants just do what you think is funny and hopefully that'll you know they'll find you funny as well but don't for me i didn't want to pretend to be somebody i wasn't and Regi was very good on stage and just odd and everybody loved him and just he's so funny and he went on to be a writer producer 
he acted a little bit in Larry Sanders. He played a writer on Larry Sanders. So uh, Regi was at DWI. He had started. He was one of the guys who had started probably a year before I did. So he was one of the big names there. And Bert Chalice. Uh, uh, Chilly Chalice. Exactly. Uh, who passed away about a year ago, I think. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah. I know he did, but I think it was about a year ago. Uh, so then when I got back into stand-up in 87-ish, uh, Michael Flannery had established himself as a you know, big gun in Cincinnati. Roger Naylor was always around the scene. He was there at DWI. He was still around when I got back into it in 87, 88. Uh, and so then I got DWI. DWI was that club in Clifton. Oh, where that's I started. the club in Clifton. Okay. Yeah. And it's a different time. It was, I started six months after Jimmy Carter left office and who would name a bar DWI? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, it was still a newer phrase, a newer thought. It's like, eh, call it DWI. <laughs> I don't know. Now it's today we're not even. Ford Comedy Club. Yeah. yeah. It just would not, it wouldn't fly today, but. Um, yeah. That's when drinking and driving was cool. Yeah. yeah, yeah, like remember like on Andy Griffith, Otis Campbell. He, somebody drove a car, and they had Otis get out of the car. You can't drive. Ah, I can drive. It's a <laughs> different time now. Um, but Caminiti was another guy who was starting in Cincinnati when I when, in '88. Um, well, he had, he wasn't actually starting. He had established himself a little bit. He and I actually performed on the same stage the same night that he went up for the first time. We were in a sorority. The DG Anchor Splash competition where fraternities would send a representative to do some sort of stupid talent swim competition show. And I guess I did stand-up, and he did stand-up as well. Now it's his first time on stage in 83 at Miami. Hall wow. Auditorium. Wow. Yeah. Where were you? Yeah. <laughs> but then as far as the road, guys, I came up with, I was really close to Jimmy Pardo. Um, guys from Chicago, I really... Uh, hooked into it. Andy Kindler early on. Uh, Brett Leak, another guy out of Virginia. If you don't know Brett, very oh, so great, tremendous writer, and uh, funny dude. Yeah, that T. Sean Shannon was another uh, guy I got to be buddies with early. He and I were both baseball fans, and in '89, we both booked work in Orlando so we could go see the spring training games. And he was an Astros fan, and I was a Reds fan, and we had a great time. Checking out our teams down there. That's you know, awesome. Tishon went on to be a, he wrote on uh, Leno for several, like seven years, and he wrote on SNL for like a dozen or 10 years, something like that. So, yep. Very funny dude out of Houston. Jeff That's Caldwell's cool. another guy, very funny Jeff guy. Caldwell? Yep. Man, these are some great names you're putting out there. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, strange. Let's I've been. Do this for another hour. Then <laughs> <laughs> was this other guy. <laughs> Uh, I, I used to, when I did the road, I don't know if you, you knew this, but when I did the road, I used to keep a journal and then I also took pictures at every gig with whom, with the guys I worked with. And, uh, a few years ago, I was like, I got to see what I have here. So I took all these journals and transcribed them using my dragon naturally speaking software, which I highly recommend and don't get a penny for recommending, but it's, <laughs> it's great if you're not a typer. So I transcribed all those journals and looked at all my photographs and had those i started compiling them into a book so we will see if anybody cares but i've been i've been spending a lot of time in 1988 1989 over the past several months reconnecting with people 
and filling in some blanks and writing a book that hopefully a few people will read, but I don't know. We'll find out. Man, so when would we might be able to see that? Uh, good Lord, who knows? I'd love to get it finished in the next few months, but if I, I, I'd love to have it finished and available in the fall. But I'll let you know. Keep you posted. So, okay, so you get out to L.A., and what's your first move there? Trying to find a writing gig, an acting gig, doing stand-up at the clubs? My first move was trying not to get killed by the Northridge earthquake. I was there two weeks, and then that thing hit, which was uh, like a 6.9 or 7.1. It was crazy. Was that the one during the World Series? Uh, That was in 89, the World Series one. This was 94. Um, It was an even stronger one, I think, than the one in San Francisco in 89. Uh, Pardo was on about that on his uh, YouTube show that he's doing about the about music, and he's saying uh, he's up the year 1994, and he goes, "Everyone asks you if you were out here. You out here for the 94 quake? You out here for the 94 quake?" <laughs> yeah, Jimmy came like the next year. He um, yeah, that's what he says in the thing. Yeah, I remember get, calling that morning, calling Paul Gilmartin and Carla Felicia. They had just moved out as well, and I was like, "All right, guys, I got a rider truck. Let's get the hell out of here." But, uh, <laughs> yeah, I was like, really think the world was ending, or it was just like a little tremor, and you didn't notice how big it was, or was it like I don't know, it was it, legit scary? It was huge. It was like uh, it, it sounded like a train. And it shook as the same way, like if, if if a big truck backed into a building, if you can imagine, just some semi just slamming into a building. That's what it felt like, and it shook. And I remember thinking, "What?" I I did just kind of wake up. Go, wait, what? What? what is, oh, this must this must be an earthquake because it was like three thirty-five in the morning, something like that. I was asleep, but it was significant. The great thing was it. Moving forward after that, you had aftershocks or temblers, as they called them. And those were nothing. Those were like 4.5s. And I'd been through a 7.1. So this was like, I was glad that I had been through such a huge one because all the other ones subsequently, eh, not a big deal. <laughs> <laughs> That's crazy. But oh, yeah. So then uh, my, my goal out here was to transition into getting on commercials and acting in sitcoms and that meant getting an agent so it was just a struggle to get an agent and i started taking classes at the acme comedy theater and at the groundlings to do improv and sketch and uh i still did the road 30 some weeks a year but for for 94 95 96 and i got really close to booking a lot of commercials the process is you get an audition then you get a call back and then you get put on a veil and i was getting put on a veil on a lot and I was like, I gotta, I'm so close to booking these things. I just, I gotta do it. And, uh, so then I said, I'm not going on the road in 97. And, uh, it took a couple of months, uh, April of that year. I got uh, my first commercial and then I was America's what was sweetheart. What was it for? Uh, <laughs> I was, uh, for Six Flags Hurricane Harbor. I was the spokesman for the water park out here, which was opening up and, uh, then, uh, then the floodgates opened. I did ten a year for five years, ten different commercials, 
and started doing sitcoms and appearing on The Tonight Show doing sketches with Jay Leno. So wait, here, just, here's here's on behalf of our uh, digital uh, marketing director, Sam, I'm going to have to ask sure. you about Friends because now that we've arrived at this point in your career. So we're, we're, I don't want to skim over everything he just said. Like, <laughs> okay, we'll go back. Well, let's put a pin in that. We will cover that, though. When we get to the end, we'll cover that. Just because. So, I remember, so I remember there, I guess there was a, a week right after I started. So that was going to be 98 mm-hmm. that they played clips of people that were coming to the club and you were booked at the club. I don't remember what year this was, but I know I hadn't been doing comedy for very long. Uh-huh. Uh, and they played a demo reel of you. And it was the first time that I'd actually gotten this like put two and two together of like who you were and stuff I've seen you in, but they played like a bunch of your commercials. They played like some stand up and another thing when you were on make me laugh with Mark. Yep. Cohen. <laughs> I remember it like it was yesterday, but talk about like when, when was it that first commercial that sort of broke down the gates? Cause you, I mean, you did Kia, you uh, I'm looking at your Facebook page. You did a Charles Schwab commercial that I guess never aired with Sally Field. Yeah, you got I had a, out was, of my my most famous was probably Bud Light. Bud Light spots. I did played some guy named Eddie. We were just a bunch of guys trying to get out of work because we were alcoholics. Clearly, we needed <laughs> to drink during the day. Yeah, <laughs> WI crew. Yeah, I've done seventy. I think seventy four commercials and. Because I'm a counter, I know these things. I act like I don't know. I say yes, yeah, something like seventy four, <laughs> but it's seventy four because I'm crazy. Um, but I did. Uh, what was the question? What like, which the- one was it that you were like, okay, this is this is where I'm gonna be making my money now? Like, was it? Did you have to get a Bud Light campaign, or was it just you unlock the key? Because that's because what I notice is. You start to recognize, and sometimes it's a comedian that I know, and maybe that's why I recognize it. But you start to see like the same guy in yeah. every commercial for yeah. a while. Yeah. And is that because like there's a casting director who loves you and will use you every chance you get, or you figure out the way to audition to get the role and you just start getting more? Or, or do people just say different? we need we need to get that guy from the Walgreens commercial? Yeah. Sometimes that happens, but I will say this. I, I thought I was getting really good at the auditions. I was like, why am I not booking this? I'm, I got a callback. I get a callback. I was getting a callback um, one out of three auditions, and I would get put on a veil for half of those, and I would book one out of them. So I, would book, I was booking one out of 12 auditions, and I just knew that I was getting closer and closer, and I was like, I just – I'm I'm doing really well. It's like it's like when you're on a hot streak doing stand up, you know, Josh. It's like, yeah, I, I feel I'm in a good zone. And it took me 160 auditions before I booked my first commercial. So it took a long time. But wow. once that broke, it was like, oh, okay. So now it's breaking. I was getting so close and certain I was gonna book things that I got on a plane once to fly to do the act play at the Acme Comedy Company in uh, Minneapolis to do stand up. And when I landed, I checked my voice or my answering machine, because that's what they were back then. This is in 95 or 96. And my agent said, hey, you have a callback for AT&T tomorrow. And I was like, oh, this is one I know I'm going to get. And I'm so close to booking my first commercial. I want to book a commercial. This could say, this could make my year. I could make $30,000. I want to do this. And I was like, damn it. I'm going to get back on a plane, use frequent flyer miles, and fly back. So I did. I called the club. Can you guys cover me for two nights? Yeah, great. 
And I flew back to L.A., auditioned the next morning for the callback, got back on the plane, flew to Minneapolis, and they said, oh, you're, you're second place on this one. They don't, they don't want to hire you, but you're, you got really close. Uh, I was uh, like, Ugh. so I was getting that close and certain of it. And I think it's just a, you feel it. You know what's going on. You feel it inside, and you're getting put on a veil. And um, so, what was that? What was that? Where was I going with this? <laughs> when you kind of knew that it was like that's where you should put your effort, I guess. Right, and I think that people. I was burnt out on the road, so I wanted to do this, and I was getting positive feedback. And I think once you start booking, people do say, "Oh, who's this fresh face?" It's there's. There's like something called like the five steps of Hollywood. It's like, who's Chip Chinnery? Get me Chip Chinnery. Get me a Chip Chinnery type. Get me a younger <laughs> Chip Chinnery. And then it goes back to who's Chip Chinnery. <laughs> and right now, sometimes I feel like I'm toward the end of that scope, you know, spectrum. You know, you're like, it's like, hold on. Like you're going to a, I go to a commercial audition nowadays and they'll ask me my name. I'm like, this is not 1997 anymore. What is going on here? Whippersnapper's <laughs> asking me my name. Doesn't he know I was Eddie for Bud Light? <laughs> How dare you, sir? Tell me about the, the Tonight Show. Was that uh, – did they? Did, were you just like on call if they had an idea that they wanted to slide you in on? Because, uh, I mean, it looks like you did you know, a bunch of just random sketches where you're just like yeah. a guy in the audience or yeah. whatever. I, did like, I mean, you know, were you like a writer and they're like, hey, Chip, jump in there. You're, in, you're on for this one or – how did it was that not, but there was a Cincinnati connection there. I, I'd taken a uh, – out here they had casting director workshops, which you'd pay 25 bucks and you get to do a scene in front of a casting director. And those recently got uh, – I think they're outlawed in Los Angeles now because some of the people um, said that in order to get cast in our office, you have to take our workshop. And that's not cool. So I think that was the problem. But there are other people who treated it like a learning experience, and I viewed that. That's how I viewed these as an efficient way for me to meet casting directors and learn a thing or two about the casting process so I could be better when I got into the room. So I took a ton of these casting work, casting director workshops, which ultimately gave me a lot of work, including meeting the guy who cast the sketches on The Tonight Show, Scott Atwell. And so right. he, he saw me at the workshop. He said, oh, you do sketch at the uh, Acme Comedy Theater. Oh, great. Okay. Because we have sketches all the time. I'll put you on the list. And so Scott – would call now and then and say, Hey, we, uh, you available tomorrow. We, we need a guy in the audience, uh, to play the sketches about cloning. And you'd be like cloned 20 different times. And yeah, yeah, I'm in, I'm, you know, whatever I'm there totally. But, um, doing sketches like that, I did think I did a half a dozen of them. Got to do one on, on the show live with Jay on his 50th birthday, which was a sketch of what was it? Uh, dangerous products. And mine was knee hands. And I just had hands strapped to my knees so I could drive, the car while talking on the phone and <laughs> drinking coffee. And that was a kick. Yeah. Was SNL ever on your radar or was that ever really a big, I mean, Oh yeah. I loved it. Jim try out or try. I get- never tried out. I, I had a Kia commercial campaign that started in uh, the end of 98, early 99. And in it, um, this director, Jordan Brady and oh, yeah. I, well, actually, let me put a pin in that. Just dial back to the Tonight Show thing. I said a Cincinnati connection. I did one sketch called When Goldfish Attack, and Bert Chalice was one of the writers. And I believe he might have written that sketch even. So it was fun just to go on set and see Bert there. Uh, Bert Chili Chalice. And uh, anyway, that was a Cincinnati connection. Uh, 
Did you ever get to do stand up on the Tonight Show? Never did. Wanted to, never did. Um, I was able to see a, a, a another comic do some of my material, which is always a treat uh, because he stole it. Now I won't mention any names right now, but you know the stand up com- comedy community is very tight, and I was in L.A. Uh, all of a sudden, my phone started ringing from the East Coast. You know, it's like eight thirty, nine o'clock my time in L.A. Dude, this guy just did your joke. He did your Lincoln Memorial joke. It's like what? And the joke's pretty specific. I said, oh, I saw the Lincoln Memorial. It's no wonder that guy was president. He must have been 30 feet tall. I think his slogan was vote for Abe or he'll squish you. You know, so something stupid like that. And, um, and the problem is I knew I worked with a guy who later worked with this comic. And the guy I worked with riffed my joke to this comic who did The Tonight Show. And the comic who did The Tonight Show said, hey, can I uh, do that joke? Yeah. So this guy who opened for me gave my joke to this unsuspecting comic who eventually did The Tonight Show. And it was Robin Williams. Uh, well, the problem is there's the guy who did The Tonight Show. Two years before that, I worked with another guy who knew this comic and the comic who gave my joke away and said, yeah, this dude gave that joke, your joke away to this comic. So um, we got on the phone, cleared it up. He yeah, said, OK, I won't do it again. <laughs> What's that? That happened to me with a guy on Last Comic Standing. Yeah, I'd done a I'd done an open mic in Austin, Texas, and then I was watching Last Comic Standing, and a kid that was on that open mic did it and made it onto the show. Perfect. You've had a lot of jokes stolen, Josh. I have. It's annoying. It is annoying. It's annoying because, well, it's annoying just for obvious reasons. But if you don't have a bigger name comedian. Like I know Pat Oswald is a huge champion of like defending people who've had their stuff stolen. And if you don't have somebody like that, then it almost comes across as being like butthurt or sour grapes of like, oh, well, you're just jealous because that person did it on TV and you didn't or something. Yeah. But, you know, I've had jokes of mine turned into memes that have been really? shared millions of times. And then, you know, you go, you do that joke <laughs> in a comedy club and people are like, Ah, you took that from that meme. And I'm like, no, that meme took it from me. <laughs> Somebody maybe innocently makes the meme up. Oh, I love Josh. Here, I made a meme. Uh, <laughs> could you put my name at that as credited to Josh? No? Okay. Fine. Yeah. You couldn't have put my picture. Instead, it had to be a conversation between Captain America and the yeah. Black Widow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's frustrating. Man. All right. So is it friends time yet? <laughs> Oh sure, I guess. But I want to. I love these com- that Kia commercial. Uh, like I feel oh, like yeah, you were you were in roles that that like I don't know. Like from what I know about your stand up, the a lot of the commercials I've seen you in, it's like you can see it's the same guy. It's like obvious why you got it. Like that Kia commercial was. It was very. It, I, what would you call it? Satire or sarcasm of like a of a really serious car commercial. Yeah, there was the Jonathan Price for Lexus commercials, and so they were hoity-toity, so we were parroting that. Or you know, Is it parody or satire? I'm not even sure. It's parody. one of the two, but it's, I remember you were like, in very serious tone, you would say, this car has four tires, yeah. sta- standard. <laughs> Brakes, doors, seats, all standard. A car like this won't last very long. Yeah, that was a that was my favorite commercial of, of all that I've done. I think it's on my website, chipcheddery.com, if you ever want to check it out, anybody. Look at all my clips. Um, 
But the Kia, but that particular commercial, you, you were talking about SNL. I definitely wanted to get on Saturday Night Live, and I sent that commercial to uh, Alaya Cohen, who was uh, talent coordinator on the show at the time. And I did get a voice message back from her saying, "Hey, we got your tape. Loved it. It was just a minute long. Do you have anything else?" And I didn't know what to send. I sent him a clip of. You know what a lot of people would think is my greatest work ever, my appearance on Friends. I mean, that's got a lot of buzz even in this phone call, right? Right. Um, so I, I sent him the Friends clip, and then like I, I maybe even sent him the Six Flags Hurricane Harbor commercial spot. I didn't know what they really wanted, and I, in hindsight, I didn't send him the right things. But I wanted to do the show. Never got to audition for it, but it also could be something where you know maybe uh, maybe God's out there guiding it and says, yeah, you wouldn't do well there, dude. So I'm going to make you not get it. Who knows? Who knows? That's definitely, there's definitely a difference between L.A. people and New York people, right? Oh, L.A. people are so slow and New York are so fast. I mean, that's I'm making <laughs> jokes now. Uh, and there's no subway in Cincinnati. Well, there is, but it never yeah. finished. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, the um, I, I wanted SNL, but I never got there. I did get to do two different sketch pilots. I got to do one for NBC called uh, Primetime Comedy in 98, which was George Schlatter produced it. He produced Laugh-In. So this was like, oh, man, this is amazing. And uh, Real I'm, People, I'm, didn't he? Wasn't... He did Real People. Very he... good. Yeah, and Sonny and Cher shows. I'm almost like... as old as you, Chip. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he was, uh, he was uh, a big deal. So the idea that I was going to do a, pi- a sketch comedy pilot, be a, a cast member on this show, I was like, this is going to be huge. I got a letter from him. That he signed, hey, we showed this to NBC. They love it. We're gonna, I'm sure we're gonna be talking soon. And then that, you know, nothing happened. So that's just uh, how the business works. <sighs> Sadness. <laughs> so when you got to start doing these sitcoms, was it was it all surreal for you? Is it ever lost on you that you're like? Man, even if it's just a, an episode or a walk-on role of, of a – it's the biggest show on television right now. Yeah, I did um, – my first was Third Rock from the Sun. I had seven words and I was panicked because um, I was doing a scene with John Lithgow. I tried to tell myself, dude, you're just – it's like it's like doing a sketch at the Acme Theater with Jeff Lewis, except it's John Lithgow. It's <laughs> not a – you know, it's not a huge difference. There are 200 people in the audience, but you know you're used to playing to 100 in the theater, and it's kind of the same thing. You've done 5,000, you performed in front of 5,000 people at Riverbend, so just don't panic. But it's still difficult. You just you you want it so bad. It's one of these things. I want to be on. This is going to be my chance to be on a sitcom that can be forever. So it was nerve wracking at the beginning, and uh, and the more I did them, the better I got and more calm. I was on set, which is important. I mean, I got to do Seinfeld's third to last show. That was amazing just to be on a show that I loved. Um, So what's – is it just like – is it like take after take until they get it right or is it just kind of, hey, we're going to try to follow the script and see what happens and, you know, they they pretty much go with anything? Like what's kind of the process of, uh, you know, a film and a sitcom? Uh, different places do it differently, but a lot of it's basically uh, you, you start the show, run it chronologically. Sometimes they'll pre-tape things and, and feed those in to the audience to see, hey, we shot this yesterday. Here's the next scene. Boom. Um, but mostly it's we have the script. We've worked on it and let's shoot it. 
And then sometimes they'll you'll shoot it and they'll go, you know what? That that uh, the blow to the scene at the end. Let's change that. What the writers will be there on set and they'll refigure it and do it again with the change in in uh, the script. And that happened when I did Seinfeld. Daniel von Bargen, who played Kruger, yeah. Kruger Industries. He's from uh, Cincinnati. He's from around here. Yeah, that's yeah. it. Yeah. He, uh, they drastically changed what he wanted to say. And I was just sitting next to him at, in the scene. I was like, oh, my gosh. I'm not this good of an actor <laughs> to do this. But thank goodness they're not asking me to do it. Because at the time, I just I would have panicked. But he just he said, what do you want? And then he took it in and he spat it out a minute later. I was like, wow, that is really impressive. So I always think of that. And I think that's how you got to be. When you're on a set, be ready, be flexible, and be able to do it. And he was. He was fantastic. Um, so sometimes they make you make changes. Other times it's pretty much, let's just do two takes and keep going. I'm going to, I'm going to pull some highlights here from, so are you, are you, for, do you know Amy Yazbek? Yes. I don't know so, her personally, but I know who she is from Cincinnati. So, yeah. So she is a friend of the show. She was on here and we spent some time on her IMDb page and we sort of called out some highlights. And if she had like a fun, like memory of that, she shared it. Do you want to play that game? Sure. Okay. So we talked about Friends. We talked about Seinfeld. I'm going down the list. Uh, we talked about 30 Rock. Drew Carey Show. I got to th- roll a strike on national TV. You can see an uncut strike thrown by me on the show. That's my greatest moment there. Were you a bowler? Or was uh, it, how many takes was it? I played a bowler, yes. And I, I, boy, I don't know. We probably had a few takes. <laughs> but they kept one where I... <laughs> Rolled a strike because I was supposed to be a good bowler. I was supposed to be a shark, you know. That's and awesome. Drew and uh, Mimi try to hustle me, and then we hustle them back. So uh, we have the Man Show. So, so at that point, did you know that Adam Carolla and Jimmy Kimmel would be on the bigger and better things from there? No idea. And actually, Kimmel had come to my house the previous Thanksgiving or previous Halloween trick or treating, which. I think was with two daughters or maybe it was just two. I don't know, but it was him. And I just looked at him and said, Oh, I think he's a guy, another actor because I recognized his face, but he had started, you know, he already had the man show and I didn't figure that out till later, but I was like, Hey man. And, uh, but I loved that sketch. Very funny. I'm not sure it would get on the air today. Wife school. It's a very funny sketch. And, uh, got to do it with my friend, Fred Goss, who's the other actor. Oh there. yeah. He's great. Yeah, he uh, we we were at the Acme Comedy Theater together doing sketch in the late '90s, and uh, this was a fun little sketch sketch we got to do here. Wife school. Uh, um, did you see girls on trampolines in live? <laughs> <laughs> I did not. We shot. We were a pre-taped thing. <laughs> um, the movie Coyote Ugly. Yeah, I got to do uh, – I played a cop in it, cop number one. And cop yeah. number two was Nick Vallalonga. And if that name sounds familiar, he just uh, won an Oscar, several Oscars, two years ago for Green Book, which oh, wow. was the story of Nick's father. Nick's father was played by – what's his name? The lead in that movie. But uh, yeah, I was uh, – I had not seen – I really hadn't seen Nick over the years since we shot that in 99. And um, – then all of a sudden I saw the poster for Green Book and his name jumped out at me. I go, I, I think I know that dude. Hold on. What? Wow. Yeah. So, uh, Space Cowboys. You're talking, was, you're talking yeah. Hollywood royalty in that one. Oh, man. I love I, – I got cut out of it, but I didn't find out till after I went to the premiere, which is 
great. <laughs> you know, you're sitting there waiting, you're watching. Him. My scene should be right about now, right? That's and, the best time to find out. It's, uh, oh, the scene is not here and I'm not in the credits. <laughs> I got a letter the next day from the producer. It just got, you know, he, it didn't get there in time, but it, it was saying, hey, yeah, just so you know, you got cut and uh, we'll try to get a copy for you, which they did. Um, <laughs> but that was like, you know, I remember when I booked it, my agent called up. He's like, hey, they want to have you on this uh, Space Cowboys movie, but it's only like eight, 800 bucks or something just one day. And I was like, he's like, do you want to do it? I go, um, is Clint Eastwood still directing it? Yeah. Okay. So I get to meet Clint Eastwood, get to be in a movie, and I make 800 bucks. That's fine. I'll do that. Yeah. And uh, But when I got to the set, they were – you walk in and you, they say, hi. Hey, everybody. This is Chip. Chip, this is uh, Clint and Donald Sutherland. And you're like <gasps> – <laughs> and you try to be cool, but you're like, this is, it's just, you can't help. I couldn't Tom help Lee but be Jones, James Garner. Yeah. yeah. It's like, oh, hey guys. And, uh, they kind of, they kind of show, you know, show me a chair to sit in. And, uh, and then Donald Sutherland's sitting across from me and he kind of gets this look in his eye, like, let's do the scene. And he starts doing the scene, which I read in my trailer, but it's the scene before my scene. It's not my scene. So he does his line. and I go, um, I'm not in this scene. And, and then I was panicked. I'm not in this scene. And Clint's, Clint comes up laughing. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. That's the kind of relationship you guys have, kind of, you know. And I go, no, I, you don't understand. I, I, I'm not in this scene. I'm in the next scene. I'm Ted, not Tim. And they go, well, you're supposed to be in this scene. So um, we'll, uh, we'll set up the shot and uh, we'll do it. <laughs> and I said, yeah, can I see the script? And then the <laughs> PA ran over the script. And thankfully, it was just kind of reacting to what, Donald Sutherland had to say, so it wasn't like I panicked. But I, I, you know, I mentioned Daniel von Bargen from Seinfeld. I thought that's where I got to be here. I have to, I can't panic. I have to just take what it is, soak it up, and do it. So, and then did Ted's scene get cut? It, I don't remember. That's that's a good question. Yeah, but I was like, I was so panicked, but it was it it was a cool time. (laughs) Was fun. One of my favorite shows, Curb Your Enthusiasm. Yeah, I just was talking. I did uh, last year. I did um, the Goldbergs, and I was talking to Jeff Garland about this. I said to him, uh, "Jeff, did you know when I did sign or did a Curb Your Enthusiasm that actually aired on the 9/11/2001?" He's like, "No, nah, because our show always aired on Sunday." And I said, "Huh?" So I consulted with my notes in my journal, and they actually had a sneak preview on on 9/11. So. Jeff was right that the show always aired on a Sunday, but they did a sneak preview on the 9-11 on Tuesday. Wow. wow. And, uh, probably one of the few people watching it. Dominated <laughs> yeah. the ratings a bit. Yeah. yeah. Why is no one talking about this? Hey, shouldn't this be in the deadline Hollywood? Or <laughs> I played Archie, the guy buying a car in the season premiere of season two. And, Hello? and the irony is Jeff forgot that, that uh, there was a sneak preview that day. Yeah. <laughs> That's the sadness. <laughs> But I'd known him a little bit from stand-up and from uh, just Hollywood, so it was kind of easy just to sit there and shoot the shit with him. And I was like, I got to catch a plane tonight to get to Texas. I got to shoot a commercial for the Public Utility Council of Texas. And he's like, Oh, I'll make sure they get you next. So he wow. hustled it. Yeah, but it was fun. I mean, it was <laughs> funny when you audition for a show like that because they don't, you know, it's improvised and. I remember auditioning for it, and the casting director said, so did you get the script? And I said, you mean the piece of paper over here? It was literally a shredded 
one inch thick piece of paper that said, uh, Larry tries to sell you a car. <laughs> I said, yes, I did get the script. I did. <laughs> yes. I'm off book. I'm ready. That's hilarious. Yeah. Oh, so it would be so fun. Yeah. And it was like, I, I had other friends who had auditioned for it. They, I, I asked them for uh, any tips. They said, yeah, just try to make Larry look bad. Because the show was only a year old and, you know, you know more now than you did back then. But mm-hmm. just remember looking at a car and improvising with Larry in the audition. And I said, how much is this thing? And he's like, uh, this thing, uh, uh, it's 20000 I said, what? Well, the sticker says 35000 It's like, oh, good. I got one zinger in there. So he looked stupid. And that, I think, is what got me the audition or got me the role. I was able to connect. What was one. the Goldbergs like? Super cool because I, I worked with the director, Lou Snyder, Schneider, doing stand-up at Wiley's in Dayton back in 90. And he was directing it. And he'd been a writer for years on different shows. And um, a couple other guys, uh, we played the uh, high school buddies of Jeff Garland. Yep. Uh, uh, and so I just, love that show. I feel yeah. like that show is so good, but but it's not a show that like everybody's talking about. Like, did you see it last week? You know, right. but it's consistently if I laugh out loud consistently when I watch that show. I, I catch it in reruns and I'm always like, why aren't I watching the show all the time? Because I enjoy every yeah. episode. And of course, I'm properly 80s. So that helps, too. And it's not yeah. it's not over the top 80s either. Like a lot of shows try to do It's not like in your. Oh, we used to have to put things on a videotape and rewind them. And like, <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah, it's much more subtle and it's, it's so well done. Well, almost every episode ends with like a re- actual video clip and you, you know, cause you watch the episode and you're like, no, no way this happened to someone when they were a child. And almost every episode, there's like a video proof of like, oh, that's where this episode came from. <laughs> yeah. That's a show like uh, rules of engagement is another show like that for me that I never watched really when it was airing, but oh, then yeah. in reruns, I'll see it. And I'm like, this is funny. Yeah. So I run um, all right, a couple more, and then uh, and then we'll we'll let you go because I know you got a million things going on. Oh, I've got uh, projects. I've got <laughs> the Big Bang Theory, maybe one of the biggest shows in the history of television. Yeah, well, I got to do it, and then um, it got cut, mm-hmm. so I'm I'm not on it. I got to play the uh, uh, in the scene. I owned a yacht next to another yacht where the scene was happening, so I was a yelling over from my yacht and then they said great we don't need this part in the show anymore (laughs) as it turned out so it was fun to get in under the wire but i didn't get to stay didn't get to be in it (laughs) you got further than most yes i got a paycheck and they gave me some free uh, nachos and a free breakfast burrito (laughs) that's what happened and then the last one I'll ask you about is another one that I think is like consistently good, but sort of still under the radar is Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Yeah, it's a funny show. Um, I got to play a poker player, which I like playing poker. And uh, uh, I did one thing. I guess Andy's not a Andy Samberg, I guess, is not a poker player because he showed up in the scene and he had, he had headphones in and a hoodie on. He's like, do people wear this? And if you're a poker watcher of poker on TV, a lot of jerks always wear their sunglasses and their earbuds, yeah. yep. their hoodies up. Yeah. Yeah. So it was, uh, I guess it's a good thing. Andy's Andy's not busy playing poker in casinos. Andy Sandberg was on my season of uh, premium blend on comedy central. Really? 
Yeah. And, uh, and I, re- I remember it because he was the only person that I saw like fumble a line and then basically direct the show by saying, can, can we stop? And I'm going to do that again. <laughs> oh, really? During the uh, show? Yeah. Yeah. I've never seen a stand up comedian <laughs> do that. You know, it's always like, oh, I messed that joke up, but I got to keep going. He was basically <laughs> like, all right, I'm going to do that again. And I'm going to say words you just heard. But I want you to laugh this time because I'm going to say them correctly. Oh, that's great. Yeah. <laughs> he was savvy <laughs> enough to go, OK, here's what we got to do. Okay. Yeah. Um, all right. And then the last thing I want to talk to you about on here uh, before we wrap up is the chips money tips. Can yeah, you so talk about my notes, where too. that came from? And like, yeah, I have a, a website, chipsmoneytips.com. I uh, give uh, money tips in a candy coated shell, I think is what I call it. Just a little personal finance ideas for people, uh, basic personal finance ideas, where to get a great credit card or a bank account to open so you can get extra interest on your, on your cash. Um, it just came from years of being, a, you know, I, I lived hand to mouth for so long on the road doing stand-up. I developed and found a curiosity about all these different ideas of how to have better personal finance situations. So I thought, well, why don't I try to get this out there? And I was talking to a buddy of mine. I was like, should I put out a late night infomercial? He's like, nah, the kids all do blogs. And I was like, all right, <laughs> I got to get a blog together. <laughs> so, so I have a blog and that's nice. what it is. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I was going to say, I, re- I repeat a joke of yours from that you did on Jackie Cation's podcast uh, involving uh, being frugal and things like that. And I do credit oh, yeah. you every time I say, I say, as Chip Chinnery would say. And uh, I have a 1999 Camry is the car I drive now because I give my daughter the nicer car. And I always say, I drive a car from the 1900s, which is a Chip Chinnery joke <laughs> that I love. I'm glad. <laughs> yeah. Yes. <laughs> That's fun. Well, don't uh, make a meme out of it for crying out loud. Yeah, that's oh. I, I'm, and I'm not putting your name on it either. That's, yeah. that's, how, this, that's how that's done. Yeah. That's hilarious. So what uh, what are you working on now or what is coming up that you can share with us people can look for? Uh, well, I'm working on a book that someday will get out there and then maybe people look at it. It has a lot of pictures in it. So that's my favorite kind of book, one of the pictures. Fewer yeah. words, right? Mine uh, too. Uh, let's see. I um, I don't know. We we were working on something, you and me, Josh. But I don't know if we're supposed to talk about that high level. Uh, we I think we can. Oh, okay. Whoa, yeah. Breaking news. Whoa. Drop it. Yeah. So, the, uh, you want me to set it up and you? Tell yeah, you set it up. Came. You set it up. Josh. So, um, us Cincy shirts, Darren and I, uh, we are launching a new, um brand here in the next couple weeks uh if you're listening to this right when it comes out maybe it will have come out by the time you hear this but the brand is called in the clutch and it is um it is taking what we some licenses that we have acquired which include major league soccer major league soccer players association ncaa various ncaa schools negro league baseball and our newest and the one we're most excited about, with all due respect to the others, the Major League Baseball Players Association. So we're going to be able to do um, shirts for any current Major League Baseball player, and those are all going to be found on in the clutch. So the way that this process got started was Chip reached out to me last year and told me this story. Yes. There is a uh... – Back in the olden days, 
there was a guy named Dante Bichette who played baseball. He played for the Reds at, at one point, but after his, he was on the downslope of his career because he had an, a fantastic year in 1995 for the Colorado Rockies. And, uh, and the, the year before that, 1994, I was sitting in the, in the stands at Mile High Stadium before Coors Field watching the Rockies with comedian Troy Baxley. And uh, we were sitting there watching the game, and Dante Bichette came up to uh, the plate, and I said, hey, how many times have you seen the headline, Dante's Inferno? Just riffing stupid stuff, you know, meant nothing. And he's like, uh, never. I said, how about Bichette happens? And then it just <laughs> came out. And I was like, oh. So by the end of the inning, Troy and I had bumper sticker ideas, T-shirt ideas. We were going to make a million dollars. And uh, so we came up with a slogan, this phrase. We filed for a federal trademark, did all this. Bottom line is we put out a T-shirt, Pachette Happens, that uh, was a big hit in 95, 96, something like that, and sold a lot of T-shirts back there. And then cut to last year, Dante's son, Bo, comes up into the, into the Toronto Blue Jays organization and is crushing it. And <laughs> Troy and I get on the phone, like, we got we to gotta dust off these shirts, right? And uh, when we did it initially, we would go out there and sell the shirts at one point, we were selling them out of a bag at the stadium. And I was like, Troy, I'm too old for that now. <laughs> and he's like, yeah, me too. I said, we got to talk to Josh because he's, he's got a setup all ready to go. He's got the distribution channels. He's got the production. So Josh and I got on the phone. And uh, Bichette happens 2.0. We're, we're hopefully going to have that happen. Now that you have licensing with Major League Baseball, that's going to be fun. So at the right time, we're going to release that on the world. Yeah. It's uh, it's weird to be launching a sports brand uh, when no sports are being played. That is for sure a uh, a new a new world for us to to try to navigate. But the conversation with you about that shirt is what led us to to this point of getting this license, which ultimately led us to launching this brand. And uh, it's just funny because I've made some friends with old Reds players through my uh, relationship with the organization and I uh, play at Reds fantasy camp. And um, I was like, how do I get a hold of Dante Bichette? And yeah. then come to find out my friend, Danny Graves, former Reds closer is like, Oh, my wife and his wife are like best friends. And I was like, <laughs> okay. So the next thing I know I'm emailing and texting with Dante Bichette's wife about making a, uh, doing a new version of a of a T-shirt that was viral in the '90s, created by <laughs> two friends of mine, and I had no idea that any of this existed. That's funny. Yeah, yeah. it was. It's uh, it was. Yeah, this is. It's it's gonna be fun. Uh, what we got to get is a picture with Dante wearing the old shirt and his, his son wearing the new one. With that 2. is 0. that is certainly the goal. So. <laughs> <laughs> so it's it's fun. We're haberdashers. Well, you, you've been a habit. Yeah, you guys are in the clothing department. Yeah. Um, all right. So how can people follow along with uh, all the fun stuff that you're you've got coming up and you're doing now? Is are you are you active on the social media? I know you're on there. Uh, yeah. I, I know we're friends on Facebook. I don't know if that's something that you. Yeah, you can find me on Facebook publicly. Chip Chinnery. I got that at Twitter and at uh, uh, Instagram. I think I've just I'm at I'm at Chip Chinnery everywhere, and then also at Chips Money Tips. Or if you want to go to ChipsMoneyTips.com, check that out. It's free to subscribe. And okay. I recommend highly to go go check out his demo reel and some of the old commercials and stuff because they they really are super funny, man. Thank yeah. you. We should put that on our blog here. Uh, 
when the episode comes out. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, uh, one thing we ask our guests to do every episode is come up with a promo code. One promo word, code. Yeah, one word or phrase that people can use at CincyShirts.com. What do you think, uh, Chip? Does that sound crazy? Does it make sense? It can be whatever you want. I Let's it. make it. We've had it. Wu-Tang Forever was a clip. Chip's <laughs> <laughs> good. Let's make it. Uh, yeah, that's 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 fine. Chip. <laughs> yeah. Chip. Yeah. All right. All right. So Sorted. type in chip at com. You'll save 20% on your whole order from the day that this episode is released until the next episode airs. Dude, thank you so much for your time, man. And uh, best of luck to you. Keep representing the Natty and come say hi to us next time you're in town. We'll go to a baseball game. Will do. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me, guys. Thanks, Jeff. Awesome. Thanks. We'll yeah. see you. Bye. Chip Chinnery, lots of Hollywood songs I could have used, but uh, I think that one fits the best, uh, what with Chip being out there in Hollywood since, uh, well, the early 90s, even though Concrete Blonde are off of the 80s, but uh, that's when Chip started his stand-up career, so I think it all made sense. Do check out Concrete Blonde, by the way. I think I think you dig him. We have a link to Chip's reel on our blog, but if you go to his website, you'll find it there as well, and that's chipchinnery.com. Chinnery has one N. And don't forget to check out Chip's Money Tips as well, his money-saving blog. Again, just Google that, Chinnery with one N, and uh, Google will lead you right there, I'm sure. Oh, and I'm pretty sure I butchered Chip's joke. Uh, the joke is this. It's, I drive a car from the 1900s. Which I do, a 99 Camry, and I love it, and I'm not getting rid of it until it dies. So if there's someone you'd like to hear on the podcast or someone you'd like us to have back, because we've had some people back on the podcast, of course, just email us, podcast at cincyshirts.com, and put podcast guest in the subject line, and then just tell us uh, either who you'd like to have on the show uh, and a little bio of them and why you think they'd be a good guest, or uh, who you'd like to have back and what you'd like us to talk about this time around if we didn't cover something that when they were on the first time. All right, sound good. So be sure to tell friends and loved ones about the show, including folks who may no longer live in the area, like Chip, <laughs> but still feel connected to the tri-state. And if you haven't already, as always, do go back and plunder those Cincy Shirts podcast archives, especially now that you may have uh, more time walking around the neighborhood or whatnot. Today's show is produced by me with help from Josh and Darren. Special thanks to my friend Pat Francis for putting me in touch with Chip. Now, Josh has known Chip for ages, but as you know, we've been super busy at Cincy Shirts helping out local restaurants, the zoo, local hospitals, and others with all our fundraising t-shirts and so forth so josh really didn't have time and since i'm the producer of the podcast it made more sense for me to reach out to him so anyway thanks to pat for uh, giving me chip's contact info our theme music is cincinnati by the way by big nothing they are from philadelphia find their music on itunes spotify wherever else you get your music the plan is to have them on next week to talk about that song we're also going to play some songs about cincinnati so that'll be fun find midget tees from great places like philadelphia boston phoenix pittsburgh cleveland louisville and more at oldschoolshirts.com lots of defunct sports teams uh, old shopping centers restaurants radio stations there's a section of video games as well so uh it's like cincy shirts of course but for those towns and again the promo code for this episode is chip all lowercase uppercase you can alternate if you like it won't make any difference and you can use that to take 20 percent off your entire cincyshirts.com or old school shirts 
shirts.com order. How about that? And you can use the code uh, normally in our physical brick and mortar stores where they open. And when they do reopen, they will be in over the Rhine, Hyde Park, and Loveland, of course. In the meantime, follow our social channels, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Snapchat for the latest in C-Shirts news. Tell your friends about the show. Give us a good review wherever you get the podcast from. And as always, download or stream us next time. Bye. I said goodbye.